Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me is my good friend and co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Hello. Very good. I am Mark Bigney. A little bit of follow-up from last week's review of Envelopes of Cash. As everyone will be well aware, we are not exactly uh, replete with what you would call sports men. I am not what you would call a sports enthusiast. I'm not a man of sport. And so there were some aspects of the theming of Envelopes of Cash, although overall I praised it as one of the best themed board games of the past few years. There were a couple elements that didn't quite make sense to me, and the designer, Andy Schwartz, was kind enough to illuminate me on some of the finer elements of of sports ball. One of them is as to the regional scoring, and it is helpful, uh, I can phrase this in a cynical way, it is helpful to lock down a region for your university in terms of recruitment, and therefore every young promising athlete just thinks of your school as the place to go, thereby further limiting the academic horizons of all these young student-athletes and ensuring that the pipeline to exploit their likenesses and their, their athleticism is is undisturbed by anything like critical thought. The other thing that was that I was concerned about, or at least didn't make much sense to me, was the notion of using illicit payments to put out things like a chancellor or a provost. And Andy Schwartz pointed out that the the, the design intent uh, that did not c- communicate to me by my playings was that this wasn't, you know, having a chancellor or provost at your university. It was having a suborned and corrupted... A, a buttered. <laughs> a well-buttered, properly incentivized provost or chancellor. And with those provisos in mind, I thought it was necessary to give a brief addendum to the most excellent game and most excellent satire of Envelopes of Cash. Thus armed, I think I'll be better able to appreciate the, what's the word I'm looking for, terrible things that one one does in the context of playing that well, game. if you're a provost and you're not driving a Porsche, are you actually a provost? <laughs> this is an excellent question. I, I think you missed your calling, Walker. I think you should have been a metaphysician. <laughs> So, we're going to talk about games this week. We're going to talk about the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Aurus, the game we reviewed one year ago. We're then going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic this week. This is actually a topic that I've been thinking about a fair bit lately, specifically in the context of games that we've been playing and other games we haven't. And we've never done it before. This is not a revisiting something over the course of our how long have we been doing this? 30 years. And we're going to be talking about deck building. All sorts of deck building. All sorts of deck building. So, Walker, what did we review last year? Exactly. One year ago, we reviewed a game called... I haven't heard... Like, I don't think I've played it. <laughs> Just like Heat Pedal Guards of Atlantis 2. Yes, it was our game of the year of 2022. I play it as often as I humanly can, which is sadly not very often. It is a big, intimidating box. It needs even numbers of players, and ideally... You want to have an equivalent number of experienced players and inexperienced players. With those limitations, it is sometimes hard to get to the table, which is a shame. But I have been able to play it about half a dozen times or so, at least. I'd I'd have to check my notes. It's a board game that excellently mimics a MOBA-style game, like League of Legends. And you have minions pushing back and forth between the two bases. There's no towers in this one, but you still have different types of minions pushing back and forth. And we get to play the heroes as they jump across and try to eliminate the minions and each other for points and pushes. And it is a marvelous masterclass of tension, of player interaction, of risk reward, of action efficiency, and of cool leveling up. And uh, I have an enthusiast enthusiasm for the structure of MOBA-style games. I don't actually like playing the specific MOBA games. In that, I am unlike Walker, who plays League of Legends all the time. In fact, I believe he's currently halfway through a match right now. Shh. I'm, I'm pushing a tower. 
<laughs> yes, in his uh, fevered uh, dreams, he mutters about last hits and and pushing lanes. So yes, Guards of Atlantis Two. It's going to be getting more content. There was a crowdfund, successful crowdfunding campaign for a reprint and some balance adjustments and some new characters. I'm looking very much forward to getting all of that. And I uh, I make it very much a priority to play Guards of Atlantis 2 whenever I can, which, as I say, sadly is not often enough for my tastes. And that was the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Now, on to the games we played this week. Mark, what did you play? I played Aqua Biodiversity of the Oceans again. So this is a review copy we got from the publisher, and it is a light-tiling, nature-themed game, again, under the Cascadia to Calico Axis. Uh, this is very light and approachable, much more, uh, much closer to the Cascadia end than to the Calico. I was worried that I hadn't given it a fair shake because I, I kept thinking about the structure of the scoring conditions, and I, I, it was, it is at least the case that in Aqua Biodiversity, you don't have the scoring conditions handed to you at the start of the game. There are these possible scoring conditions that you build towards, and then you further build to try to maximize the scoring off of them. So, you know what? I'm going to try some of the other scoring conditions in the box, because there there's a bunch. As Walker would say, there is a plethora. And I, so I, we, we played the first time with scoring conditions 1 through 6. This time I played with scoring conditions 7 through 12, and they were bad. They were not good. They were bad. They were less interesting. The one thing that I kind of sort of liked about Aqua is gone. So there's this idea in Aqua of you form a pattern to make a small animal, and then if you make a pattern of small animals, you can build a large animal, and in at least the scoring conditions 1 through 6, that large animal will then score other conditions elsewhere. And so there's a trade-off involved of whether you want the small animals for other exogenous reasons, or sometimes they're even just flatly worth more points than the large animal you're replacing them with, but you get this extra scoring condition. So there's this kind of trade-off and, and question about risk. The scoring conditions 7 through 12 do not incentivize you to build large animals at all. In point of fact, they disincentivize you from building large animals because all of those scoring conditions relate to having small animals next to other small animals of that type. Oh. And so in addition to not making you build large animals, it's this weird set of superficially easy to remember, but difficult relations. So green gives you bonus points for being next to yellow. Yellow gives you bonus points for being next to pink. Pink gives you bonus points for being next to blue. And so every time I'm building, I'm thinking, wait, wait, wait. Do I want to build blues next to pinks or pinks next to blues? Which, which way is the direction going? So you have these six unidirectional relationships going on. And not only... So it's, it's, it's more difficult to internalize and it's less interesting. And so, look, it's perfectly, it, it's fine. It's one of it, it, it's one of those very pleasant family weight sort of placement games. The Vincent Dutre art is very cool, but the one through six scoring conditions are kind of vaguely interesting at times, and the other scoring conditions, in my experience, are not. I don't know, man. It's all right. Not particularly inclined to go back to it. And that was my further experience with Aqua Biodiversity of the Oceans. Now, to be fair, I'm not particularly jazzed about Cascadia or Calico or most of the other games in that elk either. Gun to my head, I'd probably prefer Aqua to Cascadia, if only because, as I say, you get to build towards the scoring conditions rather than them being handed to you. But it, it's not my cup of tea, and I do like tile-laying games, so take that for what it's worth. That is Aqua Biodiversity in the Oceans, designed by Dan and Tristan Halstead, published by Sidekick Games. I also played a review copy of Bloodstone. This is designed by Martin Wallace and put out by Wallace Designs, and I streamed it. So if you're interested in seeing it, come on by to the YouTube channel. And I was, I've been playing the solo mission. So this is the third solo mission. This is sort of like a, you've you know conquered large parts of the land, and now they're all pushing back. So you've got the hill giants swarming in from the north and the dragon lords swarming in from the south, and you've got to hold out uh, for a certain amount of time for what what were what in the game mechanic is for your bag to refresh three times if you can make it for your bag to refresh three times then you've won the game and your bag refreshes every time it runs out of tiles so i sort of tried this strategy of just getting as many units on the board as i possibly could therefore there'd be less tiles in my bag and it would just refresh faster it seemed to work all right once again it's just these combats just get so tedious and especially when you're doing it solo and you're getting swarmed on all sides you're doing like three or four combats a turn and you're just it was getting awfully tedious and much like it is in the normal game and the combat is just not as rewarding as i wish i'm just not going to be a broken record saying the same things over and over i really love the production of bloodstone there are some good things there but just overall it just doesn't hit the way i wish it would so that'll be the end of bloodstone for now 
anyway, I'm not going to do any more solo uh, missions. I'm going to play some Kingdom Rush. So if you have any interest in Kingdom Rush, come by on Wednesday. We're going to be starting that up. Speaking of Kingdom Rush, we did play it and we streamed it on Saturday. Uh, it's based off of a, a computer app or a computer game where it's sort of tower defense. You have all these different types of units streaming down these paths. You put towers in their way, much like every other tower defense. But the difference or the hook in this one is that you have a champion that you can move around. They do all sorts of special abilities and spells. And throughout the campaign on the video game, you level up your champion. They do more and more powerful things. And they mimic this quite well in the board game. So they have the cards of all the minions streaming in, and now it's a tetrometo sort of puzzle. You are launching spells and missiles and arrows at these cards, and they are all these different shapes, and you have to cover all the units on the card to destroy it before they swarm down through the exit, and and you lose the points. I think they do a great job. It was well enjoyed by all. Yeah, so that's Kingdom Rush Elemental Uprising. It was a Kickstarter that I just got in. It is designed by Lara Cameron, Helena Hope, and Sen Fu Lim. Played another game of Imperium Horizons. This is a review copy by the publisher. I have been playing Imperium Horizons uh, tw at least twice a week since I got it. I am a massive fan of the Imperium system, and Horizons absolutely doubles down on what makes Imperium great while also adding this notion of trade. I was skeptical about trade at the beginning, but the more I play it, I appreciate it more and more. It is definitely not a very approachable system. It is not something that makes a whole lot of sense or you're apt to make a lot of use in your first or, or possibly even your second play, even if you're very familiar with the systems involved in Imperium. At least that's been my experience. The people that I've shown it to that are experienced with the game system don't interact much with trade at the beginning, but then they might start to get slightly more comfortable with it. That's been my experience personally. First couple of games with trade routes, I didn't really experiment with them much, but the more and more I play, the more I appreciate the extent to which they can serve as force multipliers or additional options in your turn. The problem, one of the problems is that it works better in multiplayer games because there are more trade routes available and more people might be inclined to pursue that avenue. So if there's only one opponent then and they decide not to pursue trade routes, well, then the mechanism doesn't really get to shine the way that it is intended to. But if you're playing with multiple opponents and there's more opportunity for that, the problem is, is that ever since the beginning, Imperium has not really been a game that, it, that shines at multiplayer. It is best solo or two-player in my experience. I am willing to play a three-player. I have played it before four-player, uh, and it, it worked, but that is not its best configuration. And I absolutely love the fact, uh, just before I, I let Walker complain about him not enjoying Imperium, which is fine, that they really are spending a lot of time and effort to flesh out the civilizations you don't typically find in your classic Western civilization game. We're not You don't just have the Mauryans, but you also have the Guptas. You don't just have the Persians. You also have the Sassanids. You have the Wagadu. You have the Taino. You don't just have the Qin Dynasty. You also have the Tang Dynasty. It's really, really impressive. And I really love exploring these different peoples at different stages of their civilizational development and how they've been modeled in the context of Imperium. I've, I've talked a lot about the theming of Imperium classics and legends and horizons as a civilization game. And I really do think that it is the very best themed civilization game that I have ever played. I absolutely adore Tresham's civilization, but nonetheless, it is a very abstracted 30,000 foot view of civilizational development. In Imperium, you do get to have the added personality of, you know, people like Julius Caesar showing up, people like Chandragupta showing up, people like Chandragupta II showing up, the revenge. But they don't serve as immortal god kings. They show up, they do something, they do something impressive, and then they go into your history. That history element really manages to tie everything together. And I am looking forward to exploring yet more of the new factions in Imperium Horizons. I'm also looking forward to replaying some of the factions that I've already played. I've now played as the, the Magyars. I've played as the Guptas. I've played as the Sassanids. I've played as the Akkadians. I, it, anyway, I am all in for the system. So long as Nigel Buckle and David Surtse keep designing new decks, I am going to be doing it. I think the next time I play, I might try some of the weird ones, like Martians or cultists. But I didn't want to go in first. I didn't want, to, I didn't want that to be my first experience with the new set. Walker, what are your thoughts on Imperium Horizons? Uh, I, it's just not for me. I don't think there's any big problems with it if you if it's very heads down yes there's very little little to none player interaction absolutely and and just in the end for me I, it just came down to i just didn't care like i it Ooh. there was just 
that's that's a pretty that's a pretty damning indictment. Well, I it, I just didn't find any. I can, but I can see where other people would find interest in it. I just don't. That's all. <laughs> it, it just it it was just so heads down that that it just wasn't for me. Well, there are lots of heads down games we enjoy. Do you have any ability yeah. to speculate as to why this heads down? I don't. Game just, there was no particular mechanic that I enjoyed manipulating. Okay. Right. There was you know you put there was like put the cards out, take the cards back. <laughs> you know, look at these cards. They now you get to play those ones, and, and it you know it just wasn't this. I don't know. Walker Imperium is awesome. It, I, I can see where some people would. <laughs> I'm not saying there's any part of it bad. It just it's just a very not for me game. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say that any of your specific criticisms are are uh, are, are ill founded. As I say, it's extraordinarily multiplayer solitaire. The trade module kind of sort of takes a little bit of that edge off, but you're not going to experience the trade module. You're not going to have the bandwidth for it to really exploit it until you're a few games deep into the system. And at that point, if you if you weren't grabbed, then that's that. And with three players, the downtime is considerable. And so uh, definitely better with, with, with two or solo. But if the fundamental systems don't appeal to you, then there's not much to be done about that. That is Imperium Horizons by Nigel Buckle and David Tertze, published by Osprey Games. Now, you and I got Tokyo Highway Rainbow City back onto the table. This is a dexterity game that sort of where you're creating this crazy interlocking highway system with these long, thick popsicle sticks that have these really nice rubber ends on them. And they're interweaving in between these buildings and through rainbows. And uh, there's actually a... I didn't say there's actually a game here, but there's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason to put roads in certain places yep. and reason to put certain cars on certain roads. There's all these different goals you're trying to hit. If you put the same car, type of car over someone else's same type of car, then they have to give you pieces. And there's a lot of strategy on seeing how many pieces you have left and, and manipulating your two special uh, yellow discs just right. There's lots there. It's such a turnaround from the first edition. I Love both gay times we've played Tokyo Highway, Rainbow City. Yes, if you were disappointed by the original publication of Tokyo Highway, if you thought, well, this is visually interesting, but there's not really much going on, then Rainbow City might be the game that you are waiting for. I would encourage you, if you're at all curious, to take a look at an end state. It really is visually arresting. And the more I think about it, I'm struck by the fact that Tokyo Highway, Rainbow City, like some dexterity games capture some of the great elements of tabletop miniatures games. Allow me to explain. Primarily by virtue of the fact that they force you to evaluate the uh, spatial parameters of how to engage with your opponent. So specifically in the context of Tokyo Highway, there's a non-trivial amount of blocking going on because you cannot build directly over existing pylons erected either by your opponent or yourself. But at the same time, you want to be crisscrossing roads. And that dynamic forces you to look at the table and evaluate the spatial parameters of play in a way that kind of reminds me of evaluating lines of fire in a more traditional tabletop miniatures game. It is also similar to a tabletop miniatures game in a way that some people will appreciate and some people won't, in that setup is very consequential. <laughs> the added terrain offered in Rainbow City is not just a visual appeal, but it also is grist for considerable scoring opportunities. And if a particular piece is placed too far away, well, it's not going to be worth anyone's time to go interact with it. But on the other hand, if it's too close, it can be trivially scored by somebody. And so figuring out where to put things is... I don't think perfectly transparent, but that's part of the game. You know, it's not like you you just scatter them randomly. You're supposed to place them as players in various parts. And so I think I'm going to be spending more time next time we play paying attention to how those specific pieces are going to be played so as to try to maximize my ability to score off of them and minimize yeah. other people's abilities. Because that, that part is definitely mimics in in traditional miniature wargaming. Yes. Is when you're putting out the objectives on the board Absolutely. at the beginning and you're and you're figuring out well I can race out to get that one I'll put this one by the trees so it's harder for them to get Absolutely. and that part of it is almost exactly the same so that's this is Tokyo Highway I want to make sure I say it's a review copy that we got from from uh Itten Games and uh I'll play it anytime I think I still prefer Crash Octopus but those are two very very excellent dexterity games uh that also uh, that both actually uh crash octopus as well gives me that kind of miniature gaming vibe in a lot of ways about cover and, and, and sight lines i believe it's still up on kickstarter right now it is still up on crowdfunding right now you can get an expansion 
for the base game of Tokyo Highway, or you can get a new base edition with all the Rainbow City stuff available. We played another game of Sail. This is by Akiyama Koryu and Yusei, and it is a two-player co-op trick-taking game, and I'm beginning to reevaluate the extent to which various combinations are worthwhile. A lot of what drives Sail is that you're basically forming recipes based on what cards were involved in the trick, right? If I win the trick with a cannon and I beat another cannon, something happens. And I think I'm overvaluing that particular combination. But what you definitely don't want to do is end up in the situation, and there's a small number that, that admit of this, uh, this, this result, whereby somebody wins a trick and nothing happens. That is the worst-case scenario and is apt to spell doom. Now, I guess actually the absolute worst-case scenario is to suffer damage when you're not equipped to suffer the damage. But I think why we lost, and we did lose, which is great, I, I find losses often more interesting than repeated wins, that we had a, too many tricks where nothing happened. And I really think that trying to play to the... the it's one of those trick-taking games where you pass a card to somebody else. I've been playing trick-taking games one way or another for at least a quarter century. I have no conception of how to pass cards in a partnership trick-taking game well at all. There are some people, like the, the hardcore bridge players or what have you, you know, someone passes them a red five, and they're like, I know the entire contents of my partner's hand. Let's go. Nat 20. But in my case, I'm like, I, I know I want to be void in some suits. Uh, I guess I'll just get rid of this card, which is not a pro-social way to, to, to play with your partner. Anyway, I'm very much looking forward to more sale. It's quick. It's cheerful. It's uh, it got different scenarios, and we can escalate the difficulty. Any further thoughts on sale, Walker? Nope. It is lots of different player powers, and also on top of that. All yeah, they don't trigger very much. No, but it's something. It is. <laughs> I, I agree. It is a thing. It is a thing. And uh, the color palette is amazing. Yeah, it's a, a really neat little game. Little indeed. That is Sale. We also got Force Science back to the table. This is designed by R. Eric Rose and put out by Gray Fox Games. It is another fantastic dexterity game where you're using these giant blocks to sort of mimic genome chains <laughs> and, and create antidotes. Cures for various diseases. Yes. You are 3D printing cures for diseases. And so you Look first you whipping out all these fancy science terms. We we know we're on top of this. First, what's this? We I'm, I study the humanities. I don't know anything about this stuff. First, you're designing genomes? these genomes with cards. Cure disease. <laughs> Sorry, you're, desi you're designing these cures with the with these cards, creating these cards? crazy shapes. <laughs> and then someone will, will suddenly call out and say, "I'll build that." And so they sort of. They have to mimic exactly what are on the cards. It'll show like a the orange block is there and it can only touch the green and the and the purple block and then the purple block's got to be on top of the yellow block and the star. But the yellow block can't touch the green yeah, or the or the or floor. The, or yeah, the, yeah, and yeah. The, and the stars in a, this ridiculous position that will just make the whole thing crash. And then as yes. soon as they think they don't have it, sleep on the stars because they have to be standing up. Yes, it's a, it's it's not good. It's bad. And then they'll call out, check it. And then the other player has to, you know, go through the little blueprint. Check and it, sure but don't breathe. Don't breathe. <laughs> and then there's a side game going on on top of that where there's a spatial puzzle where you're trying to, you know, encapsulate all these diseases. And and that's the main the main win condition, I guess, because yeah. when you build the, the, the chains, they give you opportunity to get more tiles to put into your spatial puzzle. And, yeah, every time I play it, it's all timed. I love for science. I love for science too. One of the reasons why we don't get to play it as often as we would like is on the one hand, it's super niche, real time cooperative dexterity game. But on the other hand, it is a 15 minute game in a massive box. There's no way to make the box smaller. It's full of wooden blocks, but it's not the kind of thing you can toss into a bag, which is one of the reasons why I appreciate Paku Paku so much. I'm not saying that Paku Paku is as good as for science. It is absolutely not as good as for science. Few games are as good as for science. But Paku Paku, you can just toss into a bag or toss into a, a, a some kind of conveyance. For science, you're committed to that. <laughs> you're going to know that's in your game bag when you bring that somewhere. But yes, brilliant game designed by Eric Royce, who, full disclosure, is a personal friend of mine. And I we, we don't tend to play much with the events. So that may be the next level of elaboration because I really appreciate the events because they are, what's the word, stupid? Silly. Yes, they are they're precisely the kind of silly that I appreciate. I mean, the game is already very silly. You can play as the as the lab's cat. 
who knocks things over. I played as the coffee guy. Walker played as the coffee guy. If your hand is full, you can say coffee, please, and then he can hand you a card. His presence doesn't allow you to draw extra cards. No, no, no. It allows you to request extra cards from the coffee guy. It was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that is for science by R. Herkreis. We played Charioteer again. This is a review copy from GMT Games, designed by Matt Calkins, designer of the truly excellent Sekigahara. I can't say it enough. If you're jaded on historical war games or enthusiastic about historical war games, you owe it to yourself to try Sekigahara. It's truly interesting. Charioteer, however, is different. It is a race game. And one of the things that I was really curious about was getting it back to the table with the same players. Would the level of interest maintain, and what would the playtime be? And I was very, very pleased to observe that the playtime was around 75 minutes, which is exact, which is very, very brisk for a three-lap game, and it nonetheless had a sense of development, because you have these skills that are constantly leveling up, and for a long time, they give you a plus one to your, their movement. But then when they get to the last column of development, suddenly they now give you plus three, or plus five, or plus seven, and this, I can... This is if you remember to move them. Just say <laughs> Yes, I don't know why, but people have the uh, devil of a time remembering to advance their skill token. At the end of every turn, you advance a skill token. Just, what kind of move did you do? Did you do a green move? Advance the green skill token. Did you do a red move? Advance the red skill did, did, did you do a yellow move? Guess what you get to do, Walker? Ad advance the black one. Close. Damn it. Okay, now I, I, I seem to understand why there are difficulties with the rules. But I, I really like Charioteer. It is rapidly becoming my favorite race game. It is very well done. The only other race game that comes to mind that can even remotely compete for it in my affections is Quest for Eldorado, which is barely a race game and also designed by Reiner Knizia. So this is high praise indeed. Uh, I talked about it last time that there was a design ambit on the back of the rulebook in the form of the designer notes. And Matt Calkin said, I want to make, make it so that hand management is meaningful and so that that mitigates the luck of the draw, and I want to make it so that there's a sense of progression, and I want to make sure that it plays quickly. And reading the back of the, uh, reading that, I was like, mm, yeah, that, those all sound like ambitious goals. That's what every designer of every race game always seems to say, and they almost never pull it off. And here we are with Charioteer, and it pulled it off. It's true, and it's easy to teach, quick to play, as long as everyone's like sort of chipping in and making sure it moves along at a good pace. Yes, it's got simultaneous play, and then you resolve in sequence, and those kinds of games with high player count can drag, but we were playing with five, and we were not exactly cracking the whip. See, that's a reference. That's to, to a th You that's see, that, that, that's... It's like callback tie-in, yeah. Yeah, like exactly. That. People say I don't know about sports, but clearly I know a lot about sports. And it nonetheless moved at a very, very rapid pace. If we were playing with three or four players, we could probably knock it out in 60, no problem. I agree. And Charioteer is really, really well done. It's a shame that it's not getting more attention. I think part of that is the publisher. People don't turn to GMT games for non-historical war games, which is a shame. They've got some really interesting designs. And even amongst their historical war games, they've got some really interesting crossover stuff. But, you know, it's a niche hobby, and, and people tend to associate publishers with certain things. And I can certainly understand that. And it's one of those GMT games with uh, a mounted map, so it's not even that you have to worry about you know, cardboard chits on paper, which I'm perfectly willing to do, but a lot of consumers aren't. Charioteer. I think it needs more eyes on it. Agreed. I got to show Mark Great Western Trail New Zealand. This is designed by Alexander Fister and put out by Eggerspiel. And it's very similar to Great Western Trail with a few extra hooks. Now you get to shear your sheep while you're bringing them to market. And For now sure. you're sailing boats instead of uh, going onto trains. And now you're doing a little bit more of deck building. There's lots of extra cards that you can now add to your deck, and it doesn't bloat them down because every time you play them, you draw another card. So it just moves that part of the game a little more briskly so you're not worried about, you know, losing in on your sheep. And the game plays a little bit longer, but I think it keeps you more, you know, in the game with lots of different things to do. So the fundamental design parameters of Great Western Trail since the beginning have been trying to find a good balance for having a good hand of cows or sheep versus everything else in the game. I think the perception was, amongst uh, people who played the base game to death, was that cows were just too good. That, the, the, that you should just focus on cows, get a great herd of cows, get a whole bunch of cowboys, uh, and buy the best cows and just race to, I can't, was it Kentucky City? Was it Kentucky? I can't remember. In their backwards cattle drive universe of Great Western Trail. But when I, anyway, or Kansas City. 
There's no such thing as Kentucky City. No. Okay. I know even less about geography than I know about sports, and that is saying something. I think I could name the city in which I am currently located. Past that, I don't know. And the expansion to Great Western Trail, I think, for my tastes, pulled it too far in the other direction. It made it so that cows suddenly were a thing among many. And what New Zealand does, to its credit, is it's still all about the animals you've got, but now there's a different thing you can do with the animals, namely shear them. And so basically, you now have two different things you can do, but you're still operating the same uh, parameters of the deck. That part I really appreciated. It made it so that different professions were valuable. It made it so the different spots were more valuable. There were different ways to go about it, but you nonetheless felt that you were still operating on the same central premise and it didn't degenerate into something that felt a little bit more like point salad or, oh, you thought you knew how you were playing, but you didn't set yourself up properly, so you get no points at all for you, sucker, which was somehow, uh, sometimes how I felt with the expansion to Great Western Trail. And ultimately, uh, thus, I think it comes together to form my preferred version of Great Western Trail. It's really well done. Now, I'm not as enamored with the extra cards as you are. I don't actually think, we'll be talking more about this later, I suspect, that they add considerably to the decision space of deck building precisely because they don't bloat your deck. There's no reason not to take the cards. If you can take lots more cards, you should. There's, there's no opportunity cost to taking them. It's just a way to intermittently ping some other bonus. You get a special card that gives you money. It's just you're getting some income at an irregular time. And so it is A, random, and B, not interesting. I did it, of course. I went up that bird track. You gotta have the bird. The bird. Lots of bird. Lots of bird. Bird is great. I loved bird. Uh, so I had bird cards, and they were great. They'd show up, they'd say hello, and then they left. But again, I, I didn't find it an interesting trade-off. Normally in a deck-building game, when you purchase a card, there's some consideration about whether you want to, to be living with this thing. In Great Western Trail, New Zealand, it was just, eh, more cards the better, as far as those cards are concerned. It's not a problem. I just didn't find it especially interesting in terms of, uh, of, of leveraging the, 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 the deck-building. Now, I didn't... One, one aspect that I found a little daunting was I didn't really ever get a good sense about where my points were coming from. Like, at the end of the game, we did final scoring, and I'm like, what? For everyone, not just me, but, like, you had that, that uh, oh, okay. Because, and again, this is an evolution from the base formula, in Great Western Trail, the base game, most cities to which you delivered beef, as I recall, would give you points in an escalating way. In New Zealand, you have to get to a pretty high threshold before any of them start getting you points. And I looked at the board, and based on my past experiences with the other Great Westerns trail, that's how you pluralize things, yes. that this was going to be a low-scoring game, that scrabbling for five points was going to be very, very significant. This was not true. And so <laughs> I think this is just a question of experience, of internalizing the incentive structure a little bit better. But fundamentally, in terms of how it's playing with the same idea, I think it does a very good job. Now... Is it still an Alexander Pfister game? Yes. So it's Baroque. It got rough edges all over the place. It hangs together pretty well, but only largely in comparison to, you know, the already pretty hyper-elaborated versions of Great Western Trail. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed it better than the other versions. Uh, I really didn't like Argentina very much as far as Great Western Trail goes. And the base game is a lot of people have moved past it. You know, the, a lot of the people have played it a bunch of times. They, they, they only want to play it with the expansion, if at all. Uh, but I'm not what you would call an expert in any of these trails, but I did very much enjoy New Zealand. Yeah, the setup's a little more extensive, right? Because you have a lot of Oof. cards to uh, to organize. But uh, once you get past that, it's not too bad. Honestly, this is what I think. Can I be crotchety for half a second? Sure. And this is not like things were so much better in my day. No, this is just an observation. To my mind, the biggest difference between Euro's published around the turn of the century, and your average euro now is given the same level of weight, not only is the level of weight increased, but given the same level of weight, we're just willing to put up with like a 17-step setup process where a lot of those steps aren't like put out the wood tokens and put them in a supply, but a lot of them are sort these tokens into a particular stack in this way and then shuffle each individual stack and put them in a particular stack. That's step, step 17. And there's a whole bunch more like that. It's it's not great. Or Hansa Tatanica. Put the board on the table. <laughs> you you have to shuffle some discs. Oh sorry, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. That, that that that's my point. I am willing to do these things, but uh, definitely, you know, halfway through the, the setup. And those fineries of setup are the kinds of things that you're gonna forget first. 
you know, going back to a game after a month yeah. or even a few weeks, just it's 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 a pain. And I wish I, I sometimes get the impression that some designers care about this more than others. I generally get the impression that Alexander Pfister is willing to deal with a convoluted setup in a way that a lot of other Euro designers are not. He did. There is this one thing in uh, New Zealand that I really love. It's been in some of the games. I was trying to remember which ones it was, but you get an upgrade right at the beginning of the game. And, yeah. And it is nothing. But still, it's just that, that, <laughs> that it's that feeling of being able to like start your choices sure. right off the stop. You get to grab whatever disc you want. Yep. And and move it over. And now it's a a, a point tracker. But now you have that upgrade right off the hop. And I, I just love that new mechanism. It's sure. Great. That's Great Western Trail, New Zealand. To round out the week, we played some of our favorite fillers. Uh, Don't Llama Dice. Walker continues to uh, miss the old days when we were playing incorrectly. We've talked about this before. We used to score every card individually, but the proper rules are to score every class of card once. We originally played with three fives being 50 negative points. It's actually five negative points. Dewey picked up the challenge, though. Dewey picked up the challenge. He was like, look. I know you've said that high scores are now not possible, but hold my beer. He didn't actually say this. He he cracked 50, right? Yep. Yeah, it was impressive. For a game that ends at 40, that was impressive. Now, in so doing, he cost me the victory, so I will never forgive him. Don't Llama Dice is a dice game by Rainer Knizia. It is not one of his most decision-heavy designs, but we enjoy, you know, it's just it's fun to roll dice. Yeah. That, that's very much where it fits yeah, in. Yeah, well, it's where, yeah, like it's round off the day. You know, you're yeah. not thinking, yeah. you're just chatting, you pass the dice around. It's sort of like a, a gamer's version of, you know, left, middle, center, where, you know, the, the right. they, you know, throw the dice, you move the chits around. and Left, and the, center, right, I yeah. think. Left, middle, center would left. be a, a very different game. Gotcha. We also played That's Not a Hat. And for the first time, I really, I felt the, I felt as though I thought we broke the game. In the middle, I had that same observation. There was a series of turns where nothing happened because yeah, the, we all, we were all on top of things. The cards were going around yep. and I was like, oh, everyone knows all of the cards. We have, we have broken the game and it's just going to go around and around. And then suddenly. We doubted Casper Lap. <laughs> we Just did. like the first time we played it, we thought that, well, this isn't really a game. And no, it turns out that the, the, the pain reasserted itself because the, the thing is, and I, I fall into the same trap too. You're much better at that's not a hat than I am. I can follow the card play if I'm focusing all of my mental effort on where everything is. If anybody so much as asks me what my name is, I will forget something. And <laughs> I have some heuristics. Like I, I rely on, I have to assume that what other people are saying is true most of the time. And so I can remember the cards that are about to come to me and the cards in front of me. Now, that latter part, I often forget. Anyway, fortunately, we were broken out of the stalemate, which only lasted like two minutes, yeah. to be honest. Oh, yeah. But I had the same concern you did. Uh, it was it was busted wide open when I, it was either Huey or Dewey. I can't remember. I uh, completely forgot something. And um, then things degenerated from there. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was done. Well, because, yeah, you're focusing on all the cards. And not only does a new card come in, but you're all also laughing at the person who did something wrong. And after laughing, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Joke's on me. I can't remember anything anymore. That's Not a Hat by Casper Lapp. Love it. And those are the games we played this week. Now a quick break while we pay some bills. This episode is brought to you by the spring cleaning champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. And we're back with the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, bus. Yes. They keep saying it's going to be reprinted. Who's they? uh, Capstone. Mm -hmm. But in their newsletter, they said it's coming out this year. Okay. So a splatter game. That I've always wanted to try. Yes, it's that seldom explored intersection of public transit and time travel. Exactly. So I remember in the, in the before times when we were doing everything digitally, I had learned it and was ready to teach it, but we never got around to playing it. 
And so very much looking forward to Bus. I played Bus once and it it, it physically hurt me. <laughs> it looks like it's going to be that type of game. Oh, it's bra- it's it'll burn your brain all right. So we've talked about Burned. We've received a prototype from the designer John Moffat and Stone Circle Games. Burned is a two-player hidden movement game that lasts all of 10 to 15 minutes with a little bit of double think, a little bit of playing with toys, a little bit of violence, a little bit of sightseeing, you know, everything you could possibly exactly. want. Burned is going to be on Kickstarter as of February the 13th, so it's probably up in crowdfunding already. Uh, I'm definitely going to be pledging because I had a great time with my experience with Burned, and I'm very eager to see the different card sets, the different locations, the different spy setups, the different agency setups. Crowdfunding. Burned. February 13th. Kickstarter. Look. Words. Not in sentences. Fragments. Nouns. Adverbs. Simon is not on Kickstarter. Simon has something up only on GameFound. It is another uh, dragon game. What is a, a Game of Thrones game? <laughs> yeah, it's another one of the dragons. Just a... It is another Game of Thrones game. So they have a big sort of miniature game out that they put out already. This is yes, now, it's the Song of Ice and Fire miniatures game. Now this is called a Song of Ice and Fire Tactics. Yes, so it's a much lower level type game. Apparently, it's supposed to be all interchangeable, so you can have new stuff for your miniature game if you want. But now this is going to be a smaller tactical type game. So if you're into the show or into that kind of thing, this thing might be for you. Can I can I complain about something, Walker? For sure. For time immemorial, miniatures games companies have been making squad-based versions of their mass battle systems. And they have invariably felt like just chopped-down versions of their larger games. I played Mordheim back in the day, back when I didn't know any better, and when campaign the notion of having a campaign was novel. But it felt like a stripped-down Warhammer, and it did not feel like it had been designed for a skirmish environment. And this has been true of Lots of other games making their, like, Kill Team. It's like, oh, it doesn't feel like 40K. It's a, it's, ugh, it's 40K all over again, just with a smaller model count. Now, that's something. Sure, fine. But in my experience, if you want a good, tight, tactical game, you usually have to design it from the ground up, uh, like they did with Warhammer Underworlds, as opposed to other things. But who knows? I mean, I don't trust the design chops of Coleman or not to, to, to break this general pattern, yes. suffice to say. Well, but who knows? If you really like the universe, it might be worth a look. If you already have a collection of these miniatures, yeah. then you might be able to use them in this context. Because I'm sure you've got all the people from the show. Like, from, from whatever faction you've got, you've got all the big name people. Like, all the cool guys. The dragon lady. Well, <laughs> yeah. And and the sword guy. Yeah, sword guy. Sword, sword guy was uh, a, a big deal. Him and Master Chief are my favorite fictional characters. Lady with bow. <laughs> these, are, these are things that... That happened, right? This is the, that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our topic, which is deck building. Walker, should we do some history first or do we want to jump right into... Uh... No, let's do some history and I've got some other like pre-stuff here. So in the dawn of the universe, <laughs> by which I mean 2008, <laughs> Dominion was released. I actually remember the first time I played Dominion. I don't know if I've told this story before. This is one of those cases where, you know, it's a new, it's kind of a new paradigm. Not entirely unprecedented, but definitely a, a new spin on a lot of ideas. And subtle, minor rules that you can miss might make all the difference. And actually, this is going to be recurring. I'm going to be talking about it again in the context of deck building. I missed the part where you had to discard your hand at the end of your turn. But I, rem- I, I correctly internalized the rule that you drew five cards at the top of your, uh, top of your turn. That would be an interesting game of Dominion. Interesting isn't necessarily the word I would use. Now, it was still sufficiently novel that everyone was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. You use cards to buy other cards that go into your deck. Oh, that, 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 that's something. I don't know why I've got a 17-card handful of uh, provinces and duchies and sitting here out, but whatever. And then, of course, I started playing by the actual rules. Immediately, a whole bunch of also-rans followed. Two salient ones in the immediate aftermath of Dominion in 2008 were Arctic Scavengers and Thunderstone in 2009. I don't know if there were any other immediate follow-ups that, that you had any experience with, Walker. No, not that I could put a thumb on, anyway. Yeah. The next major uh, shake-up to the system was, I think, Mage Knight in 2011, which was, I think, one of, if not the first occasions where somebody said, deck building's cool and all, 
but I'm not going to make a deck builder. I'm going to use a game with deck building. And that, I think, has been one of the dominant sort of design lineages uh, in Euros for the past few years. Not necessarily the biggest trendsetter, but definitely a recurring thing. So it, it used to be novel when a game had other stuff going on and there was deck building. And that was definitely true uh, when, when Mage Knight came out and for a lot, long time afterwards. But now, you know, just look at the games we talked about this week. Uh, Great Western Trail is an excellent example of like, Euro's just sometimes like, oh, okay, now you're also doing this deck building thing. The uh, Another major shakeup was Ascension. Some people say that the Ascension model of having a rotating market was a big deal. It was, but to a certain extent, Thunderstone had already done that. And so I, I'm, I'm not saying that Ascension's any more or less derivative than any of these other deck builders. It's just... Uh, I don't necessarily see it as the same huge uh, shift that a lot of other people uh, identify it as. And the Ascension games, in turn, spawned all the, the Realms games from Star Realms and then onwards and, and so forth. And now deck building's everywhere. Yeah, so what we're talking about is, uh, for those who don't know what deck building is, is during the game, you are purchasing cards from the from the table and adding them into your hand or usually into the discard pile for you to draw again later. And those cards will improve your deck. And the big difference between what the games Mark just talked about were uh, in the before times, there was set piles of cards out and it sort of dictated how the game was going to be played. Like yeah. showed you what strategies there were or how you could build your deck. But when you got to Ascension or Star Realms, uh, it was sort of this rotating market where everyone could purchase from these seven cards and it just sort of rotated from there. Yeah, and again, Thunderstone did the same thing. Thunderstone actually had two different markets, two different currencies and two different markets. One currency was on a traditional Dominion-style market. You set out the action cards, and those those are the ones that are available. And then the other currency allowed you to go kill things. Uh, there was some comp- further complication with uh, you know the classes. and the- I still have a soft spot in my heart for Thunderstone and its various iterations. I realize that the market has very much moved past this, and I, I cannot gener- find anyone to be enthusiastic about the Thunderstone Quest, its latest iteration. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I have some fondness for the, the fundamental thing. And that is one of the reasons why I wish to flag that five years before Ascension had the rotating market, Thunderstone also kind of had one, too. A little bit. A little bit. It's true. Just a little bit. All right, so... Some key elements to deck builders. That's what I have here first. So, sure. So usually they have the way they have a way to cycle your deck, and there's multiple reasons why you want to do this. Because, like I said, usually when you purchase the better cards, they'll go into your discard pile. So you want to get through your your current deck so you can get these new cards shuffled into your into your current deck. But some of the deck builders do interesting things where when you buy the cards, they go right into your hand or they go right to the top of the deck. And we usually find those a lot more interesting. Yeah, and here's why. This is this is something I've observed before. The fundamental Dominion formula, I don't mean to pick on Dominion specifically, but the fundamental deck building formula, the ones that don't mess with the Dominion formula too much, they have a level of variance that is seldom fully appreciated. And there are lots of people who would definitely look down their noses at any game with dice that because it's too random and why bother, that would be more than happy to play Dominion or Realms games or what have you. The order in which you draw your cards is massively influential on all the standard deck builders where where your purchased cards go in your discard and you discard your hand at the end of your turn because you have no ability to craft combos in such instances. All you can do is try to probabilistically increase the likelihood of getting certain combos. And I don't mean combos in the same, necessarily of the village, 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 market, market, action card thing. I just mean combos in the sense of how has your currency been clumping, right? I mean, there's there's a reason why Dominion cites drafting from Magic the Gathering as an inspiration. You can still see that. The whole notion of land clump or mana screw, if you will, is very, very present in the games of this lineage. I'm happy to play them. I play Shards of Infinity. Shards of Infinity is my favorite quick, light deck builder, right? And it's very much the ascension sort of of lineage of two different currencies and all the cards come from a a, a central market. Uh, But when I sit down to a game like that, cards go in the discard pile. You have to discard your entire hand. I know that I'm engaging in a non-trivial amount of roulette. Yeah, and Xenoship did a great way to fix that as well, where you automatically freely got currency... And not only that, the currency automatically upgraded to take up less room in your deck. 
Xenoshift actually goes one better because in the entire sphere of co-op deck builders, I don't understand why there are so many co-op deck builders that are unwilling to countenance the idea of cards moving around the different players. When you play a card in Xenoshift, when you buy a card in Xenoshift, it can go to anybody. And so not only does it abstract away from this currency, but it also really just, when you buy the card, it goes into your hand or somebody else's hand. It just goes wherever you want it to go. Mage Knight, as you said, goes to the top of your deck. Imperium, you purchase a card, goes in your hand. And I just feel like that gives you so much more control over things. Imperium, actually, insofar as... I struggle with whether or not I would classify Imperium as a, as a quote-unquote pure deck builder. It's clearly more of a pure deck builder than Mage Knight is, because there's a whole lot of stuff going on in Mage Knight than the deck building. And you're kind of building a tableau. Sometimes some nations do an Imperium. Anyway, this is a classification that doesn't matter. But an Imperium, you are not obliged to discard your cards at the end of your turn. You are incentivized to, because you want to shuffle your deck for other reasons, not just to get the new cards. But consequently, I feel like I have more control over things in games like Imperium, games like Mage Knight, games like Xenoshift, than I do in any of the Dominion variants whatsoever. And then a lot of these deck pay deck builders have what we call the bog, right? Where they, where your deck gets penalized and wounds go into your deck. Mm. So you're now drawing these wounds instead of the cards that you want. And then you have to figure out ways to get these wounds or curses or whatever the particular game wants to call them out of your hand. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't even matter if they're negative points. The mere fact that they're useless is bad enough. (laughs) Yeah. And that, that sort of, Tempo manipulation, that part of the randomness of of card inflex, that I'm okay with. You know, if there's these terrible things in your deck, they're going to come up sooner or later. You just have to find a way to mitigate them. That I'm much more more down with. It's just when games lean into lots of combo-tastic combos and then tell me that the constituent parts of those combos are going to enter my control randomly, mm, I get a little skeptical. Again, it's not that I refuse to play them. I have a different beef with D- Dominion. My, my chief beef with Dominion is that you don't really make decisions with what to do in your hand. The hand plays itself, more or less. You look at the 10 cards that are available to purchase at the start of the game, you decide which ones you want to purchase and then roughly what proportion, and there you go, then the rest of the game plays itself. But the Dominion stands always say I'm out to lunch on this, and admittedly, I have not played Dominion in about five years. So keep in mind, I, I any of the new stuff, I, I haven't touched. I do love their the blurbs on the back of their boxes, though. Primo. It's true. And the last last part I have here is culling, where you get rid of cards out of your deck. Mm. And there's many reasons you want to do this, because usually the your starting deck is is very suboptimal, and you're getting better and better cards, so you want to start getting rid of your old cruddy cards. So usually the games insert a way for you to cull or burn cards out, or maybe a different strategy has opened up and you need to get rid of some other cards, or... The curse cards or wound cards that we talked about, the only way to get them out of your deck is to cull them in, a, in this way. Yeah. I sometimes go back and forth on how much I think your initial cards being garbage is crucial to your deck building experience. So just to pick a, pick two examples. So there's Albedo. Albedo, your starting cards aren't as good as the other cards you're going to get, but they're still useful. They're really good. And deciding how to send your forces in various ways is still vastly more important than the overall quality of the forces you have. Now, I mean, this breaks down after a while. If I've got a mitt full of fives and you're still stuck with your ones, that's not going to go very far. And then there's things like a study in Emerald. And here again, I'm going to get into trouble because there are lots of big, big fans of a study in Emerald. One of my beefs with the study in Emerald was you'd be engaging in these competitions for cards. And as a rule, the cards you can win in a study in Emerald are not as good as your starting cards. And so there's this bizarre incentive structure. <laughs> I was like, ah, why am I doing this? <laughs> so I think it is not necessary that you're... St- Obviously, you don't want your starting cards to be so bad you don't feel like you're doing anything fun. That's not great. But by the same token, you can go way off the deep end. And if your starting cards are too good, well, then there's also a problem. I'm trying to think of it. Has any game done it like Dominion did it at the beginning, where your big scoring cards are also the cards that are bogging down your deck? Yeah. So Imperium does that sometimes. Like in in point of fact, I'm I'm sorry, I just really like Imperium. (laughs) Some of the biggest victory cards in Imperium are dead cards. Uh, so the ones that are worth, you know, 11, 12, 13 points. Those ones you desperately try to find a way to send to your history as fast as possible. So they they, they, they aren't gumming things up. And um, honestly, uh, a lot of the, the, the uh, deck builders that I like 
do more interesting stuff with those things, like Mage Knight. Wound management in Mage Knight, I think, is much better than chuff management in Dominion. And, of course, in many Dominion setups, you don't have a lot of culling available. I remember back in the early days, again, back in the early days, when people looked at the seller and, like, seller, trash up to four cards. Why would I want to get rid of cards? That says get rid of points. That's losing points. Why would I want to lose points? And now it's like, yeah, obviously that's what you want to do. <laughs> oh, we were so young and naive back then. And of course, and uh, Xenoshift does such a good job of letting you upgrade your units, upgrade your troops, upgrade uh, your currency, that you can feel like you bought the wrong things, but you never feel like, oh, I'm just stuck with this garbage. What do I do with it? You just give it to the other player. <laughs> Suddenly this is explaining a lot. <laughs> It's like, oh, this rocket launcher is no good. <laughs> I think your Mary needs a rocket launcher. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, one of the things that I, I find super interesting in terms of a lot of recent designs is, again, finding new ways to integrate deck building. So I think I'll give full credit to Alexander Pfister. I think the Great Western Trail games are, are a truly interesting example of a game with deck building where, n- number one, you're not just deck building, and number two... It's not even that the deck is driving your actions, right? It's driving your play. But if you contrast it to something like Gatefall or Undaunted, which I absolutely love, and they marry gate, uh, deck building with either you know a squad-based miniatures game or a sort of uh, a tactical level World War II game, but there, the actions you do are determined by the cards that you have. Now, parenthetically, I really wish that more people would design games like Gatefall. Like, I would love to have uh, sort of the, the, the deck building riff on for what remains for you know David Thompson and maybe Trevor Benjamin to be to, to really lean into it like maybe 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 just undaunted the miniatures game I don't know Ascension Tactics came close I I, I enjoy Ascension Tactics it's kind of cute uh, but uh, the scenarios aren't really to my taste but as somebody who loves tactical games I really appreciate that more and more people are examining this intersection of tactical skirmish and deck building. Well, for games that do drive action, Revive is a great system where you use the top and bottom of cards, so you have a lot more choice on how these cards get used. Yeah. Revive is is different from a... a and again, this is the kind of classificational argument that, that I'm not interested in having, but uh, it's, it, it's one of those games where you're acquiring lots of cards, uh, but the means by which you acquire cards is a little different from the traditional deck building deck buildery way. Uh, and again, I think that's part of the influence of, you know, the long shadow of deck building has really empowered designers to think about. It's like, should people be stuck with the same actions at the end of the game as they were at the beginning? And so we were already well accustomed to the idea of upgrading the potency of actions. But now it's like, well, I'm doing things that I couldn't even do at the start of the game. And and I very much appreciate that. All I got left now are games that I enjoy that have deck building in them. Sure. Like Forbidden Stars. Your battle deck is a deck that you slowly build over time. You're building new units and new weapons, and they all get sort of funneled into your battle deck, and they come up when you fight things. I've forgotten about that, yeah. StarCraft did something vaguely similar, but that was more a function of the units you'd purchased. And then we both love Core Worlds, and uh, Albedo does the same sort of thing, where the culling mechanism is sort of garrisoning the planets that you've just taken over. So it's an interesting way to get rid of your starting awful cards and sort of cycle in the new cool cards. Absolutely. We've already talked about Undaunted. It it takes deck building to a whole new level where there are a certain number of cards and they, they, yeah. Particularly how casualties are are handled in the the deck building. Yeah. They're like the health of that card. Yeah. And, and cycling them in and you still have traditional culling. You have traditional culling for the fog of wars that do nothing. And then you have the untraditional culling, which is, my soldier got shot, and now I can't activate his squad anymore. <laughs> I also have Batoku in here. You're sort of building your cards up, but it's only a side mechanism to this, you know, elaborate game. And sort of Endless Winter, Paleo Americans is the same sort of thing. It has, yes. it has every mechanism in the game. <laughs> yes. Deck building is just one of them. Yeah, they're both reminiscent of the sort of model that I, uh, I, I identified with Great Western Trail. You're doing deck building, but the deck, the cards aren't the primary driver of your actions. They just interface with other actions you're doing. Yeah. We know Alexander Fisher loves deck building because he also did Blackout in Hong Kong. Yes. Which is another very interesting deck building game. It's true. We love Shards of Infinity and uh, Clank does the same sort of thing. In those two types of games, they've sort of color-coded a lot of the cards. 
So they're like sort of guilds or gangs or it, it gives you this association between groups of cards. Yeah. So instead of the, there's one sort of, like I said at the beginning, one sort of house where all of the cards are out on the table and you can create combos in your head about how these cards intertwine with each other. But if you have this cycle of cards coming from this big deck, it's hard to get combos going because you have no idea what's going to come up. But introducing these sort of gangs or guilds where colors interact will definitely, it brings that out much quicker in those Yeah, it's a way to, it's a way to help ensure that the combos are more common. You still have a little, you still have a little bit of the problem with the variance, but it, it tends to minimize it. And then I, oh, then, then we have Fam, right? It is such a weird sort of deck building game because it, it, it breaks so many of the tra- traditions of how you cycle your deck mm-hmm. because you're playing the cards into the discard, but once you're out of cards or when you want to get cards back, you don't get to go you get three of them back and then you have to pay for more. So it's not a deck builder traditionally, but it is still the same sort of idea. Yeah. To my mind, that is sort of an evolution or an offshoot of deck building. Uh, what I'm, what I'm trying to get people to call hand, uh, hand building games like Concordia, like Fayum, where you don't draw a random hand. You don't cycle through uh, a, a discard pile. You have a card that lets you pull some or all of your cards back and when you acquire new cards, they go into your hand, and you always have your the entirety of your hand available to you at any given time. And that, I think, is also a good way to mitigate some of the randomness, some of the variants you're going to find in your traditional deck building models. And then some games that do deck building on you know very slightly. You know, here's here's one new card that you get to put in your entire decks. Games <laughs> like keep the heroes out, where they have these sort of items yes. that you might be able to get. You know, you have your normal character deck, and you're going through and you're doing your thing. It's like, oh, but now I get a sword, and it's going right. to come through your deck. You know, once or twice during the game, and it's kind of neat. Same thing with Reiner Knizia's co-op of the mining dwarves. Yes, Siege of Rundar. Uh, there's deck building there, and I think. The more I think about it, if you want to be successful, there will be more deck building. But some, it is very much possible to play that game without having altered your deck very much. I think that's a way to lose. Yeah, that's that's. I don't think you play that way. <laughs> yeah, and, and you lose that way. <laughs> yeah, Siege, Siege of Rundar is uh, an example of a deck builder that does a thing that is not particularly common, which is your deck will always be the same size. Right, every card you buy, another card has to go out. So the purchase and the culling is the same thing. Some of the card crafting games, which are very much deck builders, like Mystic Veil. Mystic Veil is very much the structure of a deck building game, but use the the the, the trans semi transparent inserts. So you're changing the composition of a given card uh, by John D. Clare. But in Mystic Veil, you always have the same number of cards in your deck, as I uh, as I recall. Yes, for sure. And he also did uh, uh, Dead Reckoning. It's a little harder to get sort of the transparencies that go in your yes. card. So it's it's a, little, it's a little harder to call it a deck builder because it's not as easy as these other games. And it's also got a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Uh, Edge of Darkness as well. A little bit of deck building on top of a whole bunch of other. And uh, ending up in a sludge of meaninglessness. This is true. We I have, don't think they're going to put that on the box. No, it's not a good, very good catchphrase. Hot, no, hot garbage we also put in there. <laughs> they wouldn't take that either. That's not a phrase that I use, but I can respect that you do. Uh the group, minus Mark, also love Northgard Uncharted Lands. This is another game that's based off a computer game. It has very minor deck building as well. Uh, not so much the fact that, you know, it's it's the cards that drive your main actions, but at the end of the entire round, you're all going to be adding one more card into your thing. So it's a slow, a much slower deck building game. Yeah, its approach to adding cards is kind of like the way Xenoshift controls currency. Everyone is going to be proceeding at the same pace. Yes, just so. I also have Taverns of Tiefenhall here. It's a very interesting deck building game. It's very traditional. You know, you're adding a bunch of cards. You're trying to, you know, figure out how to keep in the game longer. You're putting out, you know, tables and all sorts of interesting things, making your bar better. One of the reasons why I don't enjoy Taverns of Tiefenhall all that much, I'm happy to play it, is it's kind of a throwback to some of my problems with the early deck builders where the, where your hand plays itself. Because, you know, for a long time, the novelty of the conceit, the overall structure was driving things. But I think as time has gone on, one of the things, one of the ways in which deck builders have improved, certainly the more substantial ones, is that your hand play is not trivial. You have to decide what to do with your various cards. And Tavins of Teeth and all, in that sense, felt a little bit like a throwback to me. Agreed. Like, yeah, much like, you know, original Dominion, you sort of just dump your hand out. Everything does what it does, and, and there's not much you can do about it. Yeah. My last thing I have here is an older game that, I, I got rid of 
and uh, I miss is called Rune Age. This is another of, of you know the the world that we love. You know, tearing off, tearing off, and it was a it had a cooperative elements and it. it had great. I, I really enjoyed how the the decks worked. They had all these different races and they all did their own little thing and they had several different game modes. Uh, had a great expansion, Rune Age. If you ever have a chance to try it, uh, check it out. One another game I don't have on this list is uh, Shadow Rift, another fantastic cooperative deck building game. Still doesn't let you share cards, though. Yeah, so weird. Yeah, unfortunate. Well, in a way, you have the sort of village, the line of village people, and you sort of decide how they're going to be shared between the players. You have the way. police officer, you have the firefighter, you have the construction worker. Yes, you have Mr. Green in the conservatory with the wrench. That's not the village people, though. Oh, That's no. something else. Oh. Yeah. They all hang at the YMCA. It's fun to be there. I want to be a macho man. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our necessary information at SoWrongGames.com. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. We appreciate your having decided to spend some time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Please do take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.